Welcome back to the Cato Institute's sixth annual summit on financial regulation. Today, we're talking about the evolution of banking. I'm Jennifer Schulp, the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. We just heard a frank and wide-ranging fireside chat with the acting comptroller of the currency, Brian Brooks. I found his views on national chartering of non-depository financial institutions to be really interesting and about FinTech's promise in serving low and moderate income people. And I look forward to hearing how his views differ in the fireside chat with Linda Lacewell, the New York State Superintendent of the Department of Financial Services later today. But now we're moving on to an expert panel discussing increasing competition in banking. Our panel features Maria Early, Eric Goldberg, and Ron Shevlin. Let me do some introductions. Maria Early is a financial services regulatory and enforcement partner in Reed Smith's Washington, D.C. office. A former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau enforcement attorney, Maria has particular expertise on issues related to consumer protection laws and emerging technology. She advises and represents financial services and fintech companies with respect to product development, regulatory compliance, state and federal enforcement and examination, and other matters. Maria has handled numerous matters involving federal and state regulators, including the CFPB, FTC, OCC, FDIC, several states' attorneys general, and other state regulatory agencies. She also serves as the U.S. Deputy for Diversity and Inclusion at Reed Smith. Eric Goldberg is a partner at Ackerman, where he advises clients on a range of consumer financial services issues including federal and state regulatory issues affecting providers of deposit accounts and emerging payment services. Eric assists fintech firms to develop compliant business models, both through state licensing strategies and bank partnerships, and advises on credit and fintech products, such as those involving virtual currency, blockchain, and consumer data aggregation services. Prior to joining Ackerman, Eric was managing counsel for regulations at the CFPB where he headed the Bureau's policy work on deposit accounts, credit cards, virtual currency, and blockchain, and helped develop the Bureau's 2017 consumer protection principles for customer authorized financial data sharing and aggregation. Ron Shevlin is the managing director of FinTech research at Cornerstone Advisors, author of the book Smarter Bank and the FinTech Snark Tank on Forbes. Ron is ranked among the top fintech influencers globally and is a frequent keynote speaker at banking and fintech industry events. If you listen regularly to podcasts about banking and technology, chances are you will have come across Ron and his work. We're very excited to have all three of them here today with us. The panel will be moderated by Dan Kwan, who is an adjunct scholar at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, managing partner of Bank Street Advisors, and Senior Advisor for McKinsey's Banking Practice. Dan previously served as Senior Advisor to the Director of the CFPB, where he led its first FinTech office, Project Catalyst. At the CFPB, Dan supported policies aimed at aim enabling a thriving FinTech environment, including community consumer permission data access and the use of alternative data in credit underwriting. Before I turn the mic over to Dan, just a reminder that questions for our distinguished panel can be submitted on the event site or on social media using hashtag CatoFinReg. We very much look forward to hearing your questions. Feel free to submit them throughout the discussion. Now I'll turn the mic over to Dan. Thanks. Thank you, Jennifer, for the nice introduction. So the title of this panel is called Competition Banking. So indeed, we have witnessed tremendous amount of change, changes in the banking sector, not just in the US, but globally. Some of the changes are a result of natural evolution of banking as incumbent financial institutions adopt new technologies. But many of the changes are brought up by new entrants, which we now call fintechs, which have largely operated outside the banking sector, but very much in the banking system. As we welcome new competition and uh, more competition, we are also confronted with new problems. How to regulate these new entrants? What roles should federal and state governments play? We have a lot of ground to cover within an hour, so let me just get started with Ron first. 
So Ron, you are a keen observer of the fintechs uh, for the past couple of years. Can you give us a little bit of the background on what fintechs are, especially what is the landscape of non-banks providing banking services in the United States? Which areas of banking have attracted the most entrants? Well, Dan, they're literally and figuratively all over the map. Uh, literally, because uh, not only do you see fintechs starting up in practically all 50 states, uh, but increasingly actually seeing European startups like N26 and Monzo come over from, from Europe and, and enter, the, enter the United States. Uh, I've been at least trying to track fintechs and in particular the neobanks or the challenger banks as they're often called uh, for the past few years. And the, the list that I've got going is up to about 90 different companies. Now, they're not all non-banks. Uh, some I would venture to guess no more than 10 of those 90 actually have a banking license. Um, and I would also venture to guess that of the remaining 80 that the majority have no intentions on, on getting a, a banking license. Although there are a few, uh, obviously, more, most recently, uh, Varro announced that it had received a banking license. So for the most part, the, the majority very much seem to be focused on maintaining their non-bank status and continuing as a pseudo-bank or neo-bank or challenger bank, um, operating very much like a bank. And according to Brian Brooks's comments earlier today, you know, very much there's no difference between what they do. To really understand the landscape, though, I think it would be good to kind of take a bit of a historical perspective. You know, if you look back five years, even 10 years ago at this point, the, the first neobank or challenger banks that were emerging were very much sort of generic uh, bank substitutes offering prepaid debit cards as, as their primary you know, offering. And, you know, many of them came into the market with the belief that they were serving this great unmet need in the marketplace because somehow the existing banks in the, in the uh, United States were somehow evil and not meeting the customer's needs. But what it really has evolved in the past couple of years is a, is a very complex set of, of fintech companies who are very much specializing these days in various niche areas. Uh, in particular, um, areas like, uh, well, still focus very much on younger consumers, uh, millennials and now Gen Zers. But more so you find a lot of emerging um, fintechs focusing on segments like gig economy workers who have very unique needs compared to a lot of other consumers because of the variability and fluctuations in their income. Uh, or consumers uh, who are immigrants coming over from other, other nations who have unique needs, um, who may have uh, you know, thin, thin credit files or no credit history in the United States. Um, and then others who are focusing even on the, the younger market, you know, to find a lot of um, fintechs these days focusing on the, the, the teen market, the, you know, the pre-20s, the pre-adult market. Uh, and clearly these are consumers. And if you're a parent, you know, they, these kids spend a lot of money. They don't make a lot of money, but they spend a lot of money. Uh, and so the, the, the landscape is very much evolving to a very intricate web of companies focusing increasingly on a narrower niche of the market. Uh, and this doesn't even get into the growing number of, of fintech companies who I would really consider to be more B2B players versus B2C, going business to business versus business consumer, focusing on really going through existing financial institutions with their products and services versus going direct to consumers. Interesting. So, uh, so Maria, uh... Uh, one of the things we talked about, and I, I know you you probably have been advising clients on, are some of the you know newer uh, fintech offerings that are directly competing with the traditional offerings, such as, for example, you know we know early wage access or early wage access, depends on how you call them, EWS, uh, EWA. Um, they're competing with payday loans and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, bank overdrafts. So in your opinion, uh, do you think these, these products have a chance to, to entirely replace the, the sort of traditional, more uh, expensive uh, offerings and, and have a chance uh, of success? Yeah, so I, I actually do. I mean, I, I think I would actually challenge, I, I know that people look at early wage access as perhaps an alternative to payday, but I, I view it differently. I mean, I look at these products and just uh, because of the function of the short amount of time that they're lending and the, the, the nominal fees that some of these early wage access companies charge, it, 
technically could fall within the definition of payday, but they're really doing it quite differently. And it is, you know, giving people access to, so for early wage access, you know, you're giving people access to money that they may have already earned, but because of the way um, payroll works, they don't get, you know, they don't get access to it for two weeks, but we know that they've earned it and we know that they're going to get it. And with income volatility and now with COVID, having access to that money early is important. But I think there's just a desire for these products. I mean, there wouldn't, we wouldn't have what we call fintech if the existing ecosystem met the needs of consumers. Um, and fintech to me is just really taking what we know as consumer products and delivering them on a mobile device or through a phone and by using technology and doing it better and doing it faster. So I think there's just a real desire for that. I mean, as a consumer myself, I want these things. I like being able to go on my phone and, you know, if I want to apply for a loan, I can do it very quickly within a few minutes and um, I can get it. Whereas before I would have to go into a bank, maybe fill out an application, wait a week or two. It, it, it just, it is, it is creating um, efficiencies that people want. And so I think, you know, as, as more innovation happens, as is more startups um, come into the market and they're not all replacing completely um, existing products. They are supplementing in many ways. A lot of these, as Ron um, mentioned, a lot of these companies are platforms that are working, you know, arm in arm with existing banks, um, you know, providing a piece of the, um, the process. And I think that's good. I mean, it's, it's creating efficiencies, it's creating access, and it's allowing people to, um, you know, be more efficient with things like loans and getting their paychecks and so forth. Okay, so one of the things that Ron touched on is really about challenger banks, and he already named a few of them in his opening remarks. And uh, this is going to be a uh, recurring theme in our panel today. So uh, I'm going to throw this next question to you, Maria. So uh, a lot of there are a lot of ways for challenger banks to offer banking services in the United States. You know, they can acquire um, uh, an existing bank to be a bank. They can get a license, whether it's a state or federal license, or they can get a, a you know, um, uh, which is not still challenged in court, uh, a, a non-depository special purpose, you know, banking license. Um, or they can just stay as a, a non-bank and work with a, uh, with a bank to, uh, to rent a charter. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each of the approaches? And uh, what do you think um, um, uh, is the future, especially given uh, uh, Acting Controller uh, Brooks comments earlier today about his vision uh, for the payments charter uh, 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 probably to be releasing in the next few months. Uh, what are the challenges uh, lying ahead? Yeah, so, um, you know, for, for many institutions, some of the bigger um, startups or bigger fintech players, getting a bank charter is, would be great. I mean, it's, it's a long process, but you get FDIC deposit access, you get payment system access, you get um, preemption of state laws. And we'll, I think this will come up a bunch throughout our talk today, but you know, really trying to deal with 50 different state laws, licensing, interest rate caps, usury caps. There's just, there's so much there. Um, when you get a bank charter, either national or state, um, you can preempt many of those laws and, you know, lend in particular at a, a single unified rate. Um, and there's also something called rate exportation. I won't get into it, but it's very advantageous for, you know, banks to be able to lend, um, you know, in, in, from the state where they're located. Um, but then there's other, you know, I think, um, I don't know if, if, if Brian went over this earlier, but the ILC charter and industrial loan company charter, same kind of thing where you can lend money, accept deposits um, and have rate exportation. But um, ILCs haven't really taken off in the past 15 years. I think the last one was 2005. Uh, Walmart tried to get one and there's been some criticism about, you know, Walmart. That's not a bank, obviously, but, you know, mixing a bank with um, commerce. But recently that's been revived and Square um, in particular, I think just got a conditional approval earlier this year. So that's another type of charter that is um, being revived. Um, and the one thing I'll say about that is that there, you know, the Bank Holding Company Act um, governs the uh, companies that control banks, but for ILCs, there's, it's different. Um, I know their FDIC put out a proposed rulemaking on that earlier this year. So we'll see where that lands. And then obviously the fintech charter, which is being hotly contested. And I think we're going to see this with the fintech charter and the payments charter, where you see um, the OCC trying to give a nod to innovation in banking and saying, we'll give a special purpose charter to certain fintech companies 
that do one of the core banking functions, um, you know, they won't get FDIC insurance. They'll have, you know, some of the same requirements as a, a, a national bank would. So capital, liquidity, that kind of thing, risk management, but really trying to allow some of these um, innovators into that system. So that's been hotly contested, um, as I expect the payments um, charter to be contested. Maria, if I can, if I may interrupt you for a second. So, yeah. uh, so do you think there's any fundamental difference between a fintech charter and a payments charter? I, well, yeah. I mean, payment the the payments charter 1.0. My understanding is it's really kind of just replacing, or I wouldn't say replacing a, a federal um, a federal version of the the statewide money transmitter um, licenses. So right now, if you want to move money as a money transmitter, you've got to go to all 50 states. I think there's one that doesn't have a license requirement, but you got to go to all 50 and get a license. Um, but the the payments charter 1.0 would essentially allow you to do that on federal level. But for the fintech charter, um, you know, the, it, the, there's three pay, core banking functions. Two of them, I think, would be covered by the fintech charter. Uh, lending money and um, taking, paying checks is, are the two core banking functions. So the fintech charter really, in my mind, was something that would be used for people who were looking to uh, make loans. Um, and that's been, again, it's in litigation now, and states feel like they have their license and supervised lender statutes and regulations and limitations um, that vary from state to state, but there's, a, there's important consumer protections embedded in them. And so they're fighting um, to make sure that they can continue to have that right to license and enforce usury and state um, rate limitations on non-banks that wanna lend in their state. Okay, uh, so uh, switching gear a little bit, Eric. Uh, so obviously COVID-19 has been on everyone's mind. So uh, in your uh, uh, service with your clients, have you seen any sort of, uh, has economic crisis resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic exposed fragilities among the non-banks that provide banking services, whether it's payments or lending or servicing? Uh, do you think uh, they merit a prudential response? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Um, I think it's an important question now that we're sort of all living under the, under the, in the COVID-19 world. Um, on the first hand, it's sort of a bit of a cop out to say that it's a little bit too early to tell since we're in the midst of the pandemic. And uh, I'm not an economist, but I think some of the you know real economic impacts of the pandemic haven't really played out and may start to as people's unemployment runs out and some small businesses can't reopen and there may not be another round of PPP loans. Um, but I more generally, I think we've seen the pandemic sort of impact different parts of the fintech world differently, like it has the world at large. So you've seen certain fintechs like Square and PayPal that have done really well. Their market caps have exploded. The use of their services have exploded. And they, a lot of those companies filled a huge niche when the PPP loan programs were rolled out and some of the banks were overwhelmed with applications. Some of the, the fintechs really swooped in and were able to provide access to the PPP program, even though that wasn't something that they had traditionally done. On the other hand, you've seen some of the, some other fintechs, particularly the SMB lenders that have not necessarily failed, but have seen their valuations drop. And we had a couple that were acquired at sort of a fraction of their, of their peak valuations. Um, and then from a regulatory perspective, I think the pandemic has highlighted the challenge of being regulated in 50 different states. So if we all remember back to early March, which seems about two lifetimes ago, um, very quickly, one regulator after another in each of the states was issuing different guidance on how their regulated entities can adjust their operations and take, were required to or had to take different steps um, to react to the pandemic. And you can imagine, particularly if you're a smaller fintech that might be licensed in, even if not all states, a good number of the states, just staying on top of that was particularly challenging. I know at our firm, we had put together actually a resource of all 50 state the guidance from all 50 states, and it was incredibly challenging to, to do that. Um, and if you look at it, you know, back at what Maria was saying a moment ago, that you know, the difficulties of being licensed in all of the states, if you were to have one payments charter or fintech charter, it would be a lot easier for those entities in the midst of a crisis to, um, to take in the incoming guidance. So for federally regulated entities, we had very clear guidance from the OCC, FDIC, and CFPB, which even though it was changing quickly, was all nationwide and was provided in sort of a simple framework as opposed to the state to state guidance, which was sort of all over the place. And I think, and back to the original point, I think we will see how this shakes out. Um, I think once this is over, it'll be important to look back and see how the pandemic impacted non-banks, not only how they impacted their businesses, but the regulatory structure. We've spent a lot of the last 10 years 
responding to the last crisis. And um, I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily had spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of a pandemic on the financial system, particularly with the growth of non-bank fintechs. So I think it'll be important once we get to the other side of this to sort of look back and see whether our system was able to account for the risk that these institutions faced and manage them both during the crisis and help them to get through um, to the other side of it. So it seems to me you are, you are, um, uh, you, you are suggesting or implying that uh, a, a more uh, consistent supervision at the federal level is, is, is better than a sort of more fragmented uh, you know, uh, guidance or supervision at the state level, that's number one. Number two, um, you think it's really too early to say whether there needs some kind of a, a prudential response um, um, as there's, there hasn't been any massive failures in the non-bank uh, uh, entities providing banking services. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, on the first part of your question, I think it's important to sort of distinguish between policy questions around whether states can impose usury caps and sort of the regulatory question of having uh, to comply with 50 different systems. So, you know, we can argue about whether states should be able to put usury caps or interest rate caps on their loans. But I think it, it, there's a different perspective when you're a money transmitter that basically wants to send money from North Dakota to South Dakota or, you know, the various other states. And those laws are... the. Re Requirements of those laws are relatively similar, but different enough that you need to invest resources in, in understanding those differences. But it's hard, harder for me to sort of visualize what the particular state interests are in having 50 different money transmission regimes. Particularly, I think the crisis really put, a, put that to a head is when 50 states are issuing guidance the same week. It's hard to imagine how any entity, no matter its size, can really comply and figure out how to handle all of that all at once. So I think the crisis sort of put it put a point on how difficult it can be to comply with these different regimes. When if you had one, say, whether the OCC or, you know, the future non-bank regulator agency giving guidance more clearly, I think it would have been easier to, for folks to adapt. And, and on the, remind me of your second question, Dan. <laughs> oh, I mean, so, so it's, it's still too early to say whether there needs to be any, any sort of a co uh, concerted prudential response. If, yeah. If there's no, it's no, no evidence of, of massive non-banks uh, failures. Yeah, maybe it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think we're, you know, we're in the midst of the pandemic now, and perhaps we haven't, hopefully not, but perhaps we haven't seen the worst of it. So I, I think we would want to see how it shakes out. And I think it'll be important insight as to whether our current system is really structured in the right way. We're debating a lot at this conference today as to difference between federal and state oversight and different alternatives that the various federal agencies and, and even some of the states have proposed. And whether those work, I think we can get a good test of our current system now and, and then sort of go back and see have more data to evaluate whether we should make changes down the road. Okay, uh, and, and stay on the same topic about you know the roles uh, states are playing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, states obviously are not sitting still. And then Maria mentioned the the you know the legal challenges they uh, um, posted to the uh, the OCC's uh, um, special mm -hmm. purpose charter uh, already. And uh, um, can you talk a little bit about the uh, you know uh, the controversy around the bank partnerships with state licensed lenders, fintechs or otherwise? And the, what are the dynamics between states and, uh, and the federal regulatory agencies? Um, um, obviously, you know, we, we talk about these lawsuits as well as, you know, the, recent, the recently uh, uh, two separate lawsuits filed by state AGs against the OCC and the FDIC's final rules codifying value and aid principles. Yeah, so um, I, being that there's lawsuits, obviously the relationship at certain, some level is not great because I think the states and the federal government and the federal regulatory agencies have different uh, perspectives. But maybe if we step back and just provide a, a moment or two of background, as we've talked about, we have 50 states with separate regulatory regimes. If you're a non-bank, particularly that's, you know, for purposes of this, let's focus on lending. If you're a non-bank lender and you want to you want to issue loans, you need to comply with each state's requirements. And, and in most states that requires, particularly for consumer loans, that you have a license. And most states, but not all, also have usury caps that limit the interest rates on those loans. Now, if you're a bank, if you're a national bank, you're exempt from state usury loans. And if you're a state chartered bank, you're allowed to, generally speaking, um, issue loans at the interest rate cap of the state in which you're chartered in. So if you're chartered in a state without a cap, you can issue loans generally nationwide at um, and any interest rates. So fintechs, and this is where there's been a lot of controversy over the last several years, have come have entered into what people call bank fintech bank partnerships, whereby they partner with the bank and either fund the bank's up and lending of loans or purchase the loans after they are um, extended by the bank at 
the higher interest rate. So the non-bank might be capped in a particular state at the interest rate cap, but because they partner with a non-bank, the argument goes that they are uh, they partner with a bank, they're allowed to extend loans at the bank's um, whatever interest rate cap, if any, applies to the bank. And there's been sort of two pieces of this that are sort of two different heads on a coin. Um, one is what we call the, what Dan mentioned, the valid when made rule, which is final rules from both the FDIC and the OCC that applies to the banks subject to their respective, um, the respective agencies. The valid when made rule basically says when a ba bank originates a loan, it can do so at the interest rate caps that apply to it. And then that that interest rate is deemed valid no matter what the bank does with the loan thereafter. And, and this was to quote unquote fix um, a ruling from the Second Circuit from a number of years back in a case called Madden, where the Second Circuit said a, a non-bank debt collector violated New York's usury law because it was trying to collect a loan that had been originated by a bank um, that it would have exceeded the New York usury law had it been um, originated by a lender subject to it, which the bank was not. Um, so those, those rules were both finalized this summer by the OCC and the FDIC, and both very quickly were sued by a, a group of state attorneys general, and those lawsuits are pending. Um, the attorneys general in those states would say that, um, first of all, that both agencies exceeded their authority because the plain language of the various statutes in which they, um, they initiated those rulemakings under applies only to the interest rate of the loan when it's made. So the OCC can regulate the bank when it extends a loan, but the attorney general are arguing what happens after that is not directly addressed in the statutes that, that gave the OCC and the FDIC those authority. Um, second, they're arguing that the agencies improperly overturned a ruling um, from the Second Circuit, which gets back into sort of like first year law school questions of whether to what extent an agency can overrule a ruling of the courts. Um, I, I think that's sort of an interesting question. And then the third is sort of the more of the policy question is whether the OCC and the FDIC properly accounted for what the attorneys general call sort of a rent-a-bank, rent-a-charter, rent-a-bank charter schemes, whereby basically the non-banks are hiding under cover of the bank's ability to avoid usury laws to issue loans that would otherwise be illegal in those states. And those of you who followed payday lending know that it's battles around payday lending and what interest rates are appropriate. I've really gone from state to state and various states have landed in different places on this. And I think particularly if you're an attorney general in a state where you've capped payday lending, payday lending rates at 25% or 36%, when you see non-banks coming in and partnering with a bank that's lending at rates above that, uh, um, you can get, you feel like these non-banks are sort of finding a creative way to avoid um, the carefully considered, arguably carefully considered policies of your state. So it's interesting to see as this plays out, um, you know, how the, both how the lawsuits play out and whether, you know, given that we're in election year, anything that a regulatory agency does, particularly this year, it's arguably, you know, somewhat up in the air. Um, and so whether these agencies will revisit this rule, these rules, if there's a change in the White House and the, the leadership of those agencies is an open question, particularly at the OCC, where we have an acting comptroller who's not yet been um, confirmed by Congress. Um, on the other hand, I think you've seen some path towards resolution of some of these issues. That recently there was a settlement involving a bunch of lenders and banks with the state of Colorado. Um, there was a court in Colorado earlier this year that had basically issued the same ruling as the Second Circuit in the Madden case um, in an effort to, in part perhaps because the Colorado, Colorado saw the writing on the, raw, writing on the wall with the OCC proposing to correct the true lender issue, entered into a settlement where lenders agreed as part of the settlement to cap the interest rates of their loans issued through certain banks um, to Colorado residents at, at 36% and to comply with a number of other requirements. Um, so I, this is an issue that's certainly not done yet. These are valid policy arguments, I would think, on both sides as to whether um, rent-a-bank charter schemes are appropriate and whether they are, you know, we get this the bedrock questions of federalism and whether and to what extent states should be able to limit the interest rates charged to their customers versus the ability to have national bank, you know, and national bank preemption, which I don't know if Maria, if you want to add something now, Dan, if you have a particular follow-up on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, federalism, obviously you already mentioned that. That's really, that really leads to my next question to Maria, you know, um, is, do you think uh, regulatory federalism is a barrier to greater competition in banking? Um, and the, and, uh, Depends on how your, what your answer is, you know, what, what sort of policy changes would you recommend that would be needed to encourage more entry at both the state and the federal level? And I, I don't want to, you know, uh, here just sort of 
pink states as the bad guys, you know, I, I also want to hear from you. What do you think there are things the states are doing at the right to encourage competition and, uh, and obviously balancing the need of innovation and the consumer protection here? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a tough question. It's a good question, but I, I don't think regulatory federalism is a barrier. I mean, Eric was just talking at length about how hard it is to, um, especially if you're a, a startup, you built a platform, you want to deploy, it's consumer facing, and now all of a sudden you've got to, you know, before you can even launch, um, you've got to go and get licenses in multiple states, and now you've got all these different limitations and reporting requirements, and, um, you know, it's really hard. Um, the licensing processes are different. Some are in NMLS, some are in proprietary electronic systems, some are in paper. It is incredibly difficult. Um, but, you know, with a with a federal um, mechanism, so partnering with a bank, which we were just talking about, and we'll stay with lending, that's a way for these platforms to um, you know, build, deliver better services. So you have some platforms that are doing some of the things we know are problems, like um, credit reporting um, and, and credit scoring. We know that there are you know, upwards of 40 million people who are unbanked or underbanked, but I view a lot of those people as maybe not credit worthy under you know, our traditional standards, but they're credit able. Maybe they don't use the banking system so much, but they're, you know, they're paying on time all of their bills. So you have these fintech companies that are able to underwrite really well. They can look at banking data. They can look at um, other data and tell that somebody is credit able. And now partnering with the bank, they can deploy um, affordable, supervised loans to these people. So um, so, for example, if you're partnering with the state chartered bank, and that's a very common way that these partnerships work, the FDIC has oversight and the FDIC is not a slouch. They will go in and they will review the third party the same way they will review the state chartered bank. Um, and they will make, you know, you have to make changes if they don't like it. Um, they will shut you down if you're doing something that is not appropriate. But I think the most important thing that gets lost in all of this sort of state versus federal battle is that there are real people who need access to products that are affordable and safe and can be done quickly um, so that they can become, uh, they can get into the mainstream. And that's what a lot of these fintech companies are doing on the one hand. On the other hand, they're partnering with community banks that after the last downturn, you know, everybody was struggling. Um, and a lot of these banks don't have the ability or the resources to build these sophisticated platforms to compete with larger banks. And they can go and partner with a company today um, and be able to deploy, um, you know, a mechanism to make loans online nationwide or in many states very quickly without having to build it themselves. Um, and that also, you know, brings more um, liquidity um, to their banking operations. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of ways that I think this can be done properly. But I, but you're right, Dan, states are fighting in part because there are really important consumer protections that the states have um, you know, legislated, they've thought about, they've seen, seen what the needs are of their customers in a particular state. Um, but I, you know, my personal belief is that you know, we're looking at national banks and um, state chartered banks where there are federal statutes that give them the right to make loans at, at, at certain interest rates and export rates. This is not new. This is federal law. This is Congress, you know, um, in, a, in a statute saying what should happen. And so state usury has been specifically preempted for these institutions. I think the big question is, what do we do when these institutions want to partner to be able to be more nimble and be competitive? And I think that's where the regulators can really step in and say, this is the type of arrangement that would work. This is the type of, of arrangement that wouldn't. Um, and again, it's not new to have um, third parties partnering with banks. They do it all the time. They've done it all the time. They outsource different banking functions all the time. And so there's nothing controversial about outsourcing certain lending functions. And there's nothing controversial about selling loans after they're originated to non-banks. This is, that's what the mortgage market is, period. I mean, that's, you know, when's the last time you got a mortgage loan and it stayed with the entity that um, you, you know, you got it from. I mean, it's sold right away and packaged and so forth. So I just, um, I'd like to see on a federal level, the federal regulators, um, and they're moving towards this more so, um, really be precise about, you know, what types of arrangements would work, really sort of, 
you know, putting a finer point on, again, this interest rate um, preemption, the ability to work with third parties and giving um, their regulated institutions an ability to work with fintech partners to deploy capital um, in ways that, um, you know, quite frankly, we wouldn't, again, we wouldn't have all of this if the existing structure was working. If we were able to get to the 40 million unbanked and underbanked with what we have now, we probably wouldn't have this. Uh, Eric, do you have something to add? Yeah, I just want to quickly add up and one thing we haven't talked about in this in this debate between partnering with banks or versus uh, or some sort of federal regulation versus state licensing is the cost both into individual companies and to sort of the the market as a whole. So if you're a fintech startup, say you're a money transmission business, you either have to figure out how to get licensed in 49 states in DC, um, which some people have estimated can take up to two years and cost over a million dollars, which is a hard sell to investors when you haven't tested your model yet, or you need to partner with a bank. And banks don't do this out of the goodness of their heart. They're charging a premium uh, on top of, uh, you know, they're, they're charging you basically either per transaction or some other matter um, for your ability to use their charter. And all of those costs, of course, are passed on to consumers. So we've talked to a lot of clients that want to, we've talked to a couple of clients, for example, that have been successful in Europe that want to come over to the United States. And when we tell them the cost and the time involved, they really get cold feet because they, they just see as a long road between here and there. And I think one thing as we talk through these different sort of issues at a legal, legal concepts, really think through is what provides, the end result should really provide the best result to consumers and particularly encouraging innovation by lowering the startup costs. And, and I think that's a little bit of what the, the acting comptroller is trying to get out with his payments charter. Although on the other hand, some people have said, you know, arguably being regulated by the OCC might not be any easier than being regulated by 50 states. So I, there's still higher barriers to entries, but I think in thinking through this, you know, it might be helpful to think about you know, where, where can we lower those barriers to entries without increasing risk to the system or to individual consumers or harming consumer protection. So just can, wanted to throw that out there. Can I just actually just add on to that real quick, Dan, that I mean, we saw, we're seeing now, especially with fintechs, and I know Ron will talk more about this, but you're seeing um, these services be delivered for less cost to consumers. Um, you, you, some, you know, some of these, um, you know, banking as a service, I don't know what we call it here, challenger banks, but these, these um, fintech companies that are partnering with banks to offer banking um, services are doing it without fees. They're giving, you know, some of these uh, things that we're seeing standalone companies do, they're doing, you know, two or three day early um, paycheck access. And we saw at the end of, um, you know, the, or 10 years ago, you saw banks doing some pretty bad stuff like, you know, you know, transaction reordering and, you know, you, you want to get on the phone and talk to somebody you want, you know, everything caught, we were getting feed to death as consumers. And since we've had some of these um, fintech companies come in and provide these services, um, you know, through technology, better, faster, cheaper, that's passed down to consumers. And that's actually eliminated some of those practices and, and called um, and um, created better competition, I think, um, and benefited consumers. So I know, yeah, I, I know, Ron, Ron you, you must be eager to jump in, so feel free. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. First, Marie, I think you're spot on with your uh, observation about the fees, but look, reality is, is how long can that last? In the UK, Monzo announced that it will be charging for lost cars and things like that. And, you know, one of the things you had addressed earlier was, uh, and I think you and Eric both addressed sort of the impact of the COVID, you know, the, the impact of the COVID crisis on fintech. And one of the things that uh, I don't think Eric touched on in, in a lot of depth was the reality that, you know, for, yes, for, for the PayPals and the Amazons of the world, the COVID crisis has been very beneficial. But for a lot of the earlier stage fintech companies, as the financing um, pot begins to whittle down a little bit, it's hurt them a, a bit more. And so, you know, the business model aspect to the fintechs is, is really coming to, to the forefront here. You know, how long can you last as a fintech without generating any revenue? Remember, Amazon was not profitable for a very long time, but certainly generated a lot of revenue. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think this is what's kind of coming to the forefront is the, the economics of a lot of these, these fintechs. And, and, you know, I think in the, in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll actually see less and less difference between the business models of the fintechs and, and the established banks. At some point, they're going to have to start making, making money. 
The other thing I wanted to jump in here with Dan is a little bit of the consumer perspective and, and why what's happening from the consumer perspective, from a behavioral and attitudinal perspective, and why a lot of the issues that Maria and Eric were talking about are, are really only going to get exacerbated over the next couple of years. You know, if you were to go back 30, 40 years, you know, if a new company were to come into the uh, into the market and say, look, we want to be a bank and we're going to get some other bank to kind of be the license behind us. And remember, we didn't have the Internet and mobile you know, smartphones 30, 40 years ago and said, well, I'm going to offer these banking services through the telephone. Uh, we probably wouldn't have seen very much adoption. The, the user experience would, would, have, would have been terrible. But thanks to the Internet, uh, the online experience and now the mobile experience is, is pretty good and is a good substitute for the old way of you know, having to interact with, with your bank. And so what that means is that you know, we didn't see it as much with credit cards because the credit cards came in mostly, you know, through a, you know, grew to a national focus very quickly. And so, you know, the legal ramifications of, you know, the, that was kind of dealt with early. But for other types of banking services and to a certain extent lending services, it was very much a local type of thing where it didn't matter that there were you know, 50 or 51 different uh, regulatory bodies governing things was because most of the everyday banking was occurred locally. But what's happened is that consumers today are doing business with so many different providers. And I chose my word carefully there because it's not all banks and it's not all non-banks. It's just different providers who are interacting and integrating whether seamlessly or not seamlessly, but it's no longer easy to just say, yeah, I, I do business with my bank and my bank is local. It's here in Massachusetts where I live and you know, 90% of what I do is, is local. It's not that easy anymore. The second factor that I think is really, really important for people to, to recognize from a behavioral change perspective is the evolution of sort of the core product. You know, we've, look, when, when you, all of us graduated college, and I might be a little older than the rest of the panel, it was never a question on whether or not we were going to open up a new checking account. We got rid of our student checking account, we got our new checking account, and we've probably changed that a few times over the past couple of years. The checking account has evolved from being a core product to being what I like to call a, a paycheck motel a temporary place for people's money to stay before it's, it, it moves on to, to bigger and better places. And as a result, because of the easy money movement that exists in the market, this, you know, Derek talked a lot about money transmission, but this is happening not just between people, it's happening more and more between companies that represent your ability to spend. So it might go from your paycheck to your direct deposit into a bank, but then out to PayPal, where then you spend money and more and more so out to places like Starbucks and CVS and all their merchants where, yeah, that first initial transaction is a, uh, you know, something that goes over the rails. But after that, it's, it's money that's being stored. And there's a lot of people who have a decent amount of money sitting in their Starbucks account. And so that becomes a, you know, an issue from a regulatory perspective that gets really complicated. And the third sort of thing I want to throw into this and, and get Eric's and Maria's perspective is not even so much the consumer behavior aspect, but the technology development aspect of this. Uh, you know, more and more, both the banks themselves as well as their technology providers are incorporating artificial intelligence capabilities into those systems. And more and more, we're hearing the populist cries for AI needs to be regulated. Uh, you know, this really kind of got a spotlight last summer after Apple launched its credit card and there were issues that, about whether or not their credit limits were unfair because of, um, uh, you know, their, their policies and regulations, which is pretty funny because here's Apple claiming they did it all without a bank and it was really Goldman Sachs, the bank, who were underwriting a lot of this. But the bigger issue is whether or not we can really regulate AI as it becomes a uh, embedded and integrated aspect of everyday systems. You know, it's almost like going back 60 years and saying, well, you know, uh, a lot of companies are developing systems with COBOL, we better regulate COBOL, which of course would have been a, a, a ridiculous thing to do. 
Um, but you know, that's I think a, a growing trend here as, as a lot of these providers and FitTech companies bring AI to the table on what the regulatory implications will be. So I'll put the stake in the ground there and let Eric and, and Maria kind of react to all those comments. All right, so who wants to go first, Eric or Maria? I'll, I'll go ahead if that's okay, okay. Maria. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Ron, you make a lot of, a lot of great points. We have seen a lot of attention um, on AI recently. And I think this gets into a little bit what we were planning to talk about a little bit later, Dan, is sort of what are the you know, regulators going to do? And we've seen, in particular, the FDIC throw out the idea of having sort of standard setting organizations come into play to help, help particularly smaller banks navigate these things. Because even if the big banks of the world, the Wells Fargo's and Bank, Bank of America's can invest the resources and we can argue about whether maybe they can in understanding how these systems work. It's hard to imagine that the long tail of 9,000 banks credit unions in the country will. And I think there needs to be some way to help banks and other folks navigate this. So if you're increasingly relying on a third party non-bank that you're, who's using your charter to issue loans, um, you need to have some way to have some reasonable oversight as to what they're doing. And more and more, these non-banks are offering technological solutions that are either proprietary or rely on AI models that may not be apparent. I think it becomes harder and harder for the banks to really maintain effective oversight. And that's where, on one hand, if you're going to have the OCC and the FDIC make it easier for these bank partnership models to work, you also need them, and we've seen a little bit from them on that front, come in and, and give the banks guidance on how to do that, because I don't think it's reasonable to expect every bank to handle this. And also if we do that, we're gonna end up with an, you know, a very difficult patchwork system where the different banks of the, the world are doing this very differently. We see this a lot now with our clients that are entering into bank partnerships. They'll talk to bank A and bank B and bank A and B will interpret the same regulatory requirement completely differently. So we'll draft a particular policy or something for the, when they partner with bank A and the opposite with bank B. And I don't, and they're both regulated by say the FDIC. And I don't think that's, really what anyone's intended, but that's unfortunately where we've come out. So we've seen um, you know, the FDIC suggest whether there could be more standardization around that. And I think that's the best way. One, if you have sort of some sort of standard setting organization come into place, it can react more quickly to what's happening in the marketplace. Um, we all know how, and I, maybe some of it's my fault, we all know how long the regulatory process can take. And it's not reasonable, I don't think, for the regulators to respond to every new innovation. And perhaps we can have something sort of come in that, that could help move that along a little bit more quickly. So I'll stop there and let Maria sort of chime in. I mean, honestly, from, from where I sit, um, I, I look at all of this, you know, just from a, from a personal perspective in terms of innovation, in terms of our existing structure, um, banking, lending, all of the different services. We have, um, you know, systems in place now that haven't addressed, and I, you know, I sort of keep coming back to this, but haven't addressed the needs of all every American. They just haven't addressed um, the 40 million plus un and underbanked. Um, we have immigrant communities that are coming here that have, you know, an ability to be, to fully participate and we're not getting there. Um, it, we're just, we're failing some of these communities by, by looking at, you know, even our traditional scoring models. Um, you know, we, we know that there's built-in, um, issues there that they don't reach everybody. We know that everybody who has a thin file isn't um, you know, a credit risk. So I look at AI the way I look at every other innovation. We have to try. Uh, we have to try to innovate. We have to try to regulate it. We have to be thinking about the consumer, both protecting the consumer, but we can't protect the consumer so much that the consumer has nothing um, to fall back on. We, we just have to find a way to balance all of this. And I think, um, I, you know, the states are, you know, they have their view, the federal government has its view, but ultimately I'd, I'd really like to see, um, you know, there's a lot of headbutting and a lot of fighting, and I think it's important to hash this out, but at the end of the day, who, who's, who's not being served and it's the consumer. Um, and so as we continue to innovate, as we continue to work in AI, um, we have to figure out how to do this right. We can't be worried about um, not moving forward and leaving things the way that they are because it's, 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 it's actually hurting people now and we're going to see it exacerbated. We already are seeing it exacerbated in COVID. So um, I, I think it's possible and I know there's a lot of really smart people um, who are thinking about these things and thinking about how to regulate it because I think regulation is important. You can't 
you, you, you can't have um, these structures and these systems without smart regulation, but you also can't let the fear of regulation stop innovation because ultimately it all leads to the same place, which is the people everybody's trying to serve don't have options. Okay, great. So uh, we're going to revisit the third-party uh, uh, partnership in, in a minute. So, but I do have a burning question for Ron, as I promised Ron uh, uh, before the panel. You know, uh, I really want to talk to you about challenger banks, which is one of your favorite topics, I guess, these, these days. I've seen you writing about them, talking about them all the time. So um, your recent research shows that uh, the big banks actually have increased their share of new account openings. In, 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 in recent months. Uh, I think that there's a comparison about three years you know, uh, ago, two years ago, and the, the last six months. And uh, overall, I think the, large, the largest banks have uh, been quite steady and if not increasing. Regional banks are doing pretty well, but uh, challenger banks are doing well, especially recently, but uh, seem to be, um, it seemed to me that uh, smaller FIs are, 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 are not so. Um, so I want to hear your take on that. And, and what does it take to, uh, to challenge, you know, the dominance of the of the big banks in, in, in account openings. Yeah, to your first uh, question or, or point, Dan. Yeah, there has definitely been a a market change in in consumers' behavior from an account opening perspective. Uh, if you were to kind of look at the allocation of new accounts according across four different categories, the mega banks, um, and I leave out the regional banks here for a second, you probably throw them in as well, the community banks and credit unions, and then the digital banks, the share of accounts that were opened in the past six months, uh, about almost one out of five were with a digital bank, uh, almost half of which were, were with a one of the mega banks. Uh, that's up from about, you know, high 30s, 40s um, percentages, low, high 30s, low 40s, about two, three years ago. And for the digital banks, I mean, that was going from, you know, low single digits three years ago up to 18%. The real harm has been done to, in particular, the, the credit unions and the, the community banks, the community banks in particular, who have almost practically ceded the market at this point to, to both the, the mega banks and, and the digital banks. Um, and so I think it's important, though, to really recognize as well is that the digital banks... Uh, are, and the fintechs are not necessarily replacing consumers' original banks. Um, the last research I did, which was fielded at the beginning of July, so it's pretty recent, found that about 35% of consumers in the U.S. now have more than one checking account. There are some who have three, four, even five checking accounts. Um, and some, you know, for some that's, uh, you know, might be a business reason and things like that. But for a lot of consumers, they're opening up additional accounts uh, maybe because they got some kind of offer when they opened their mortgage, but more and more they're opening up accounts with the neo banks and challenger banks because they're looking for, in predominantly, one of three things: a better interest rate, which is why so much money has moved to markets over the past couple of years. Number two, they're looking for better debit card rewards, so that's been a big feature with a lot of the uh, the, the challenger banks. Uh, and three, the people are looking for better personal financial management tools, and that's in particular. A, a lure to, to younger consumers. And so if you're a, even a large regional bank not growing as much as the mega banks or a credit union or community bank or community-based institution trying to, to fight this off and gain some, some traction in the consumer market, um, yeah, your battle is predominantly with the, the, the big banks. And look, and the reality is, is that they offer some really good mobile banking tools, uh, just as good as what the, the, the challenger banks offer. And so reality is, is that this really becomes a strategic question for a lot of smaller, mid-sized community-based institutions. And how do you compete? And you can't compete with B of A on B of A's terms. It's, it's kind of like getting in the ring with Mike Tyson and thinking you're going to put your gloves up and fight the guy. No, you, you got to get down on your knees and stab him in the foot or something or you know, try to break a kneecap. And so it's really going to take a lot of, you know, sort of niche focus. And look, this is what the challenger banks are doing, as I mentioned earlier, to a large extent. And so, you know, the, the irony and the challenge for a lot of community-based institutions is that the whole notion of community is shifting from a geographic-based idea to something more niche. 
Uh, and you do see this with a number of smart community banks who, you know, kind of find their their niche in, in an area and say, look, we got to kind of take this national. And I, I see in a lot of the surveys I do of executives, a growing focus to kind of uh, expand their geographic footprint. Now that hits charter issues and hits regulatory issues from the state perspective. And so that's why I say a lot of the trends that are happening are only going to exacerbate a lot of the regulatory challenges that uh, we've been talking about today. Okay, so I just got a reminder, we've got five minutes left, but I do want to uh, talk about uh, third party uh, relationships and uh, Ron talk about the challenges faced by small community banks. And, uh, and as we know, the FDIC, uh, uh, the chairman of FDIC since day one in her office, she wanted to, to help uh, you know, small banks, especially, you know, they are uh, very much under, many of them are under the FDIC supervision to, 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 uh, to get on the digital uh, you know, trend and uh, survive. So, and uh, as a result, they recently published a RFI for third party uh, vetting process and even thinking about the uh, voluntary standard setting. So uh, either Maria and Eric, please uh, chime in, you know, uh, for a minute or two, talk about your perspectives, whether number one, whether this initiative, uh, how valid this, this initiative is, and two, um, whether this will help achieve the goal of invigorating community banking in the United States. So maybe Eric, you wanna go first? Sure, thanks, Dan. Um, so my perspective without going into too much background beyond what Dan did is the FDIC just introduced an RFI, which is, means it's the beginning of what could be a very long process where, where they're right now just really seeking public feedback on, on whether they should proceed either to create a standard setting organization that would sort of set standards applicable to third party FinTech providers or to create some sort of voluntary certification process. Because what happens now is when a bank wants to partner with a FinTech, the bank has to do its due diligence and vet the FinTech in a number of different areas. And, and frankly, more and more, these partnerships are with smaller community banks that aren't particularly well equipped to do this on their own. So either they've got to retain expertise to do that or otherwise invest in the resources to be able to do that. And if the FDIC were to make those steps easier, either to have some sort of certification whereby a FinTech has checked these box and you can just dive right into the partnership or otherwise make it easier to vet, I think you could really speed up those onboarding times and um, eliminate some of the friction that at the start of those relationships and also allow more and more institutions to um, participate in more and more banks to participate in these partnerships with fintechs, which in theory would create competition and lower prices. Right now, I think you've got a lot of the fintech, a lot of the banks that are wary of this given the hurdles to sort of partnering with an unknown fintech. Maria? Yeah, I mean, I'll just echo everything that um, Eric just said. I just think it's critical. This is, um, I think if the FDIC can get val valuable input and then um, you know, do exactly what Eric said, which is you know, sort of launch a, a toolkit for people for, for banks to be able to partner with um, third parties effectively. That would be um, a, a really uh, important um, piece of you know, not, not just creating um, a lifeline for some of these smaller community banks that need this and want to do this, but also again for consumers who um, you know, want access to and need access to, you know affordable and um, good solutions that are bank enabled. So, and, and I would also say what, what Ron was saying earlier about, um, you know, how, how do the smaller players compete? You know, a lot of it doesn't have to do with getting deposit accounts. Again, going back to the, you know, our focus on lending, a lot of them are, you know, doing this through, um, through lending practices. They're buying portfolios of loans behind the scenes. Um, you know, you can go on to Credit Karma, for example, and refinance with you know, a fintech company you've never heard of, and it'll get sold to a credit union because they have the best rates. That just happened to me. Um, and it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, there, there are ways for these smaller institutions that don't have the reach to really be able to use some of their um, abilities to um, lend and provide low-cost um, credit solutions to um, consumers they couldn't otherwise reach. So I just think that this RFI and this ability to partner with third parties uh, that are um, you know, tech companies and tech-enabled, um, you know, processes is going to be really important um, for the future going forward. All right, so we've got a, about a minute left. So uh, got a question from Armin from audience specific to Ron. So um, would the consumers who don't use ordinary banks be willing to use a Walmart or Amazon bank? So Ron, quickly, 30 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Are they, if the question was, are they willing to use it? Absolutely, there's a segment who are willing to use it. But I would emphasize that, especially from the research I've done, the consumers who say that they are willing to do that 
uh, aren't necessarily giving up their existing bank accounts. They're opening up additional accounts with those providers. Uh, and again, we'll go back to that paycheck motel. They're keeping their existing accounts open, getting their direct deposit through there, and then moving money out to these additional accounts. So it's not like it's a replacement. It's an addition. All right. So uh, we could talk for another 60 minutes nonstop, but our time is almost up. So I would thank again our panelists, Ron, Maria, and Eric, for your valuable insights and your time. And uh, so please do come back in 30 minutes for a, uh, a great fireside chat with Superintendent Leyda Lacewell, hosted by my colleague, Diego. Thank you so much.